Amen. So, uh, what miracles? Um, what miracles outside of the resurrection are recorded in, in all four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You want to take a take a hit at it? I mean, we got some big miracles. Some of the big miracles, some of the biggest miracles, uh, you know, the most seemingly shocking miracles we haven't even talked about. But some we have. I mean, you know, wouldn't you think Lazarus, come on, wouldn't we think, now that's going to be in all four Gospels. Negative. I mean, that's, that you'd think, hey, now that was a pretty big moment, right? Only one miracle, and that's this one. The only miracle that, that occurs that is recorded by all gospel writers outside of the resurrection is the feeding of the 5,000. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, it is, I think, uh, noteworthy that it's in all four of the gospels. But I also remind you all the time that God only has to say something once for it to be of the utmost importance. So the fact that he repeats things is just... Uh, uh, it's just an indicator that, you know, we ought to take note of that. But we ought to be able to listen once, right? Just once. That's all he needs to say it is once. All right. Oh, before I forget, I need the men to help us tonight. It seems like we've said that a lot lately, haven't we? But we really need you to help us tonight, okay? After the service, all the way on that Far East door, uh, we got some stuff we got to move into the building. So if we go over there, all you young guys, we'd greatly appreciate it. Many hands makes light work, and things that would take a couple of men all day to do, you guys can get done, and you know we can jump in there together and get it done in a matter of minutes. So let's do that. Remember, there's sign-up sheets out on the Welcome Center for uh, places to serve at Fall Festival. All right, Mark chapter 6. So let me give you some background. We'll start before... Verse 31, Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So let me give you some context. After the healing at the pool of Bethesda that Pastor Matt talked about last week. Here's what happens. There's two very significant things that occur just prior to the feeding of the 5,000 that lead to this moment where Jesus says, hey, get in the boat. We need to go to a desolate place. It's getting kind of crazy. The crowds are reaching the highest point uh, of, of Jesus' ministry. So here in Mark 6 or... Luke 6 or Matthew 14 or Luke 9, those are the places where this is recorded. It's sort of the height of his popularity. And uh, the first thing is, is just prior to this, the Lord commissioned the disciples and sent them out two by two to go out on their first maiden voyage without him. He said, go and, uh, and minister to people, heal people, cast out demons. Man, they came back. They were pumped. So you can imagine the situation because it had already been fever pitch because of what Jesus has been doing. But now the 12 disciples had gone out, you know, in six teams, and they had been very successful in what they had done. 
So now all those people were amped up because of what they'd seen them do. And so now there's even more people swarming in. And the other thing is that Jesus just got word just prior to this uh, is when we find out that John the Baptist uh, was beheaded by Herod Antipas in, the, uh, in prison. And so, you know, that was a, a, a big deal. You know, there was a lot of uh, John's followers. Uh, Jesus was close to John. Uh, he's sovereign and all of that. But anyway, the point being is those two things that happened. So let's go. The disciples are worn out. It's crazy. There's people everywhere. Uh, you know, Jesus says, let's go and, and, and take a few minutes and recharge. So they go to Bethsaida. Which is, the, which is a remote area, but it's also the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Philip. Those three are from Bethsaida. So they go over to Bethsaida, and they're going to rest. So when they arrive on shore, look at verse 34. But when they get on shore, they saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So, so much for rest, so much for, you know, hey, we're going to get a little bit of t quality time with Jesus, which we're still trying to share with him all the things that we experienced out on our own. You know, we were really looking forward to this, and now that's gone because we show up and Jesus has compassion on them. Now, why is Jesus moved with compassion? Because this is the story of him feeding 5,000 people that all of you have heard before and are familiar with. But yet what happens is a lot of times people get confused and they think that Jesus has compassion on them and it has something to do with the, the fact that there's 5,000 people in their way out in the wilderness and they don't have any way to get anything to eat or whatever the case may be. But it's, it's important just to understand that he's moved with compassion before the issue of food has even been raised. There's no, nobody's talking about food that doesn't have to do with anything about him having compassion. See, Jesus has compassion because he sees a huge crowd of people. And these people are created in the image of God. And he sees this crowd of people who have no idea what really matters. And you have to understand what Jesus sees from his vantage point. He sees a crowd of people. He knows the hearts of the people. We know the hearts of the people. If you read all four accounts in the four Gospels of this account, John is, is, gives us some very good insight uh, with regards to the motivation of the people, that they're just there seeking things for themselves. They have shallow motivations. They're not there for the right reasons. They're not there to see Jesus. They're there to, to see what they can get from Jesus. But here's what's important. Is that Jesus sees a crowd of people who are blind and sight is available. So of course he feels compassion. These are people that he loves. These are people that he created. These are people that, you know, are, are image bearers. And they're consumed with themselves. They're consumed with the here and now. And it breaks his heart. And so Jesus prioritizes making things right over making people happy. See, he knows what they want from him. And he doesn't give them that. Notice what the Bible says. He begins to teach them. He begins teaching them many things. 
That is not what they want. But that's what they get. And it's very important for you to understand. Don't just nod your head and say, okay, I got that. You need to make sure that this rings true in your life as you're dealing with your expectations. God doesn't do, His priority is not making people happy. So that means making you happy or me happy. I'll guarantee you that when life doesn't go the way you want it to go and you get frustrated, this can serve you very well and can, can, can protect you from a lot of bringing more harm on yourself by the way that you respond to that situation. But he wants to make things right. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 He died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You see, we know why they're there. Their motivation is wrong. Jesus ought to just tell them to get lost or, you know, wave his finger and make a big dragon appear and scorch them all with fire or have a pack of lions come eat them all or all sorts of things. That would be perfectly acceptable in this situation. But instead he has compassion on them. Now what's shocking is. Is that most often we base our compassion on deservedness. We're very selective about who we're going to have compassion on. And who we're not going to have compassion on. All of us are. We all do this. And so. And we have this criteria in our head. That we use to sort of hash out. Who's going to get compassion from us and who's not? And let's be honest. Most of you in the room, I think, would be, you know, lean more towards maybe the camp that I would, my flesh leans towards. And that means being extra picky about who's going to get compassion. But there are some of you that are broken in the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's the same brokenness, it's just two different directions. And so some of you want to give compassion to everybody, and both of them are equally destructive. And so Jesus doesn't do neither of those things. But here's the the, the point. The point is God never bases His compassion on deservedness. There is zero examples in the Bible of God giving compassion based on merit. It's not merit. It's not deservedness. Those are not the components that God uses when He's determining whether or not He's going to have compassion. Now that's important to understand. See, you you need to think about all the ways that God teaches us this principle. Like, for example, this is important to think about little things from way back in the Old Testament that start to establish the character and nature of God that we oftentimes miss. Like, for example, in Deuteronomy 15, God introduces this new concept called the Jubilee. You familiar with that? Every seven years, all debt is forgiven. Wouldn't that be good? Anybody in favor of this? Now, none of the creditors are in favor of this. But all the irresponsible people who live beyond their means, who you know, are 
trying to, you know, figure out how they're going to make it from here to there and so on and so forth. Oh, yeah, you love this, but this is the point I'm making. It's the point I'm making. He introduces the Jubilee. Every seven years, all debt is forgiven. This is what's interesting. What is the criteria for the forgiveness of the debt? There's one criteria. That you are an Israelite. All debt within God's people forgiven every seven years. Now, what happens when you, because here's the first thing, like, and we read that and go, oh, that's great. You know, we're doing our little, you know, devotion or whatever we're doing. And, oh, and we just move on. But why don't you stop and camp there for a second? Why don't you stop and think about the, 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 the moron in the, uh, amongst the Israelites that manages their money like some of you do? Who just can't seem to put it together? Doesn't save money, doesn't, can't, doesn't tithe, is always trying to make it from one thing to the next. Can't, you're buying stuff you can't afford. You got credit card debt. You got all kinds of, you're not, you're just not, you're unwise. You're just a fiasco financially. You deserve nothing. And yet, what happens? Forgiveness. You get forgiveness. What about the person who is very wise and who tithes on every penny they make and saves money and is diligent and pays their bills and doesn't owe people and and lives debt-free and all that? Well, what? They have the same qualification. So my point is, what is the Jubilee teaching us about God? It's teaching us something about the character and nature of God. And that is, is that this issue of deservedness is something we need to be very careful about. Very careful. Remember, there's two evils. One is, we're so selective, uh, or we're just highly selective so certain people get certain things based on whether we think they and then on the other side we're just you know we have no we're, we, we have no concept of what's going on so we we end up we want to help everybody which ends up hurting lots of people see there's lots of people who want help that don't need help got that so it's on both sides But the Jubilee teaches us something about God. So Jesus has compassion on the plight of people who made their own mess. He, his heart is broken when he looks at them. But who, who, he's not looking at them going, oh, look at what Satan did to them. Oh, poor people. They just didn't know anything and sin just swooped down and just ate them up. Is that what he's doing? Negative. That is not at all what's going on. Every one of them is lost and separated from God, and every one of them is lost and separating from God because of choices they made. Just like you and just like me. Yes, that's how that happens. So see, 
The message of the cross is God saves those who chose their own way into calamity. That's how that happened. I didn't get saved from someone else's sin. I got saved from my own sin. Just like you. So a lot of times what, what happens is we miss the main thrust of a familiar text like this because already you can tell what I've talked about is, is I'm forcing you to think in ways you don't normally think. So you can see things you don't normally see. Because I know how we nuance this and we inoculate ourselves to the real value of this text. Scene 2, verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, which, believe me, between those two sentences, there is a long pause. This didn't just happen. When, he, when Jesus says, you give them something to eat, Philip is the one speaking here. We know that from other places. Philip's from Bethsaida. They're having this conversation. He, they all turn back around, huddle up like, all right, Jesus just said for us, there's, five, there's literally 10,000 people over there. They're hungry. What does he mean by that? What are we supposed to do here? Now remember, they just got back from going out, casting out demons and healing people themselves. And yet what he says just completely blows their mind. Completely. So they come back and they say to Jesus, Now shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Which is kind of a smart alecky thing to say. Because they don't have the money. So they're just, you know, first of all, understand, this is, we're talking about 30 grand in today's money. So it's 30 grand. So they're like, well, should we just, uh, should we spend 30 grand to go feed the people? Jesus, you know, lets that slide. What's clear about their response is that it tells us that the command that Jesus gave uh, to them was totally unreasonable. Totally unreasonable. Which is interesting. It's interesting to me that people that just cast out demons and healed people find this command completely unreasonable. Like... Wouldn't you think in this situation, what do you think you would do? Imagine that you had just, on your own, you know, you and one other disciple had just went out and literally seen the power of God work through your life in such a degree that you had cast out demons and you had healed people in, in absolutely remarkable, inexplainable, supernatural ways, at least don't you think that what you would do is go, when Jesus said, you feed them, you'd go, 
can you give me a little more explanation about that? Could you give me a little more information? You know, I'm not doubting that we could do that. I just need some clarity. I feel like that would be a reasonable response. Don't you feel like that? They were complete. They saw zero potential for them to be able to meet this need. Now, remember, their natural tendency, the disciple. Well, here's what we know about the disciples. They're imperfect, just like me and you. But their natural tendency is to obey God. They don't want to disobey God. They, they do dumb things just like you do and just like I do, but not on purpose. They want to obey God. And yet they see this as just... So, you know, it's 30 grand. You want us to just go buy 30 grand worth of food? That's nuts. Even if we had the 30 grand, how far do you have to go? Because remember, they're in a very remote place. Twice already it's reminded us of how remote this is. So even if you had the 30 grand, which is interesting to me that they bring up the, well, should we just take $30,000 and go buy it? Like, there's not a Dollar General right there. Clearly, they're not in Mississippi, or there would be one right there. So, Jesus answers them and says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Very important. And when they had found out, again, this takes, how much time is between those two sentences? There's a period in the Bible, but how long does it take to ask 10,000 people, what, what do we got, folks? That's, that doesn't, that's more than a minute, right, to figure this out. Fan out, go through the crowd, figure all this out. And so when they had found out, they said, because Jesus is doing what? He's teaching. All this is going on, he's teaching, then they come back, then he's teaching, and you know, they're having this interaction, he's teaching. And when they had found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. Now, I want you to see here. So where they are is the need was huge, but the available resources were meager. It's so important that you... Feel the tension of this moment right here. This overwhelming need and limited resources and trying to sort out how are we going to navigate this dilemma. We got this much food and this many people. And that is a very familiar place to be, isn't it? Yes. So you're going to skip over everything that's in that text box and move down. We're going to come back and finish there. Verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now it's springtime. The grass is green. He tells them, 
sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, that is a strange thing for him to say. What's going on here? Here's a discipleship moment. Sit down on the green grass. In fact, what he tells them is sit down. Luke tells us, he says, sit down on the green grass in groups of 50 to 100. So, so organize everybody. So why would he do this? Okay, well, let's just think practically. Practically, uh, what do you think is going to happen if you don't get everybody into groups? And Because Jesus knows what's coming down the pike, right? He's not surprised by the future. So it, let's suppose you got a mob of 10,000 people. They're hungry, and suddenly you snap your fingers, poof, and there's a big old pile of food. Now what happens? Oh, it's going to be Black Friday at Walmart, people getting trampled. That's going to be a bad move. But if you get everybody organized into groups, now there's some structure to this situation. So practically, he's just trying to, he's, he's keeping the mob from rushing in. But then there's a spiritual lesson at the, at, at the same time, because he didn't tell the people to organize into groups. Who did he tell? He told the disciples to organize the people into groups. So there's a practical lesson so they don't mob everybody. There's a spiritual lesson. He's testing the faith of the disciples, which Jesus consistently does all through his ministry, even when he's healing lepers and all sorts of stuff. He says, go to the priest and show yourself. In other words, you know, I've had leprosy. I haven't seen my family in I don't know how long. Don't go home and see your family first. Go do that. He's testing their faith just like he does to me, just like he does to you. So there's a practical lesson, there's a spiritual lesson, all right? I mean, this would not have been an easy task to organize people into groups, but they persisted in the assignment. They got the job done, which is, again, should not be surprising. God is just, everything God's doing in this, in this story is consistent with what God does all throughout Scripture. Got this immense crowd into some semblance of order. So here's what I want you to understand. As Jesus does ministry, he's also training disciples for ministry. It's very important to understand this. That as a disciple, part of making disciples is, is that as you do ministry, you're training people to do ministry. Jesus knows he won't always be with the disciples. And he's teaching the disciples how to do things when he's not there. And so the next time the disciples get into a large crowd of people and they're doing ministry, they're going to remember what Jesus taught them here. So not only, not, notice, Jesus is now in the phase of ministry where prior to sending them out, he was in the you watch me do ministry mode, right? But now it's changed to now I'm going to watch you. So he sends them out, and then he does the same thing here. He could have just told all the people to do what he wanted them to do. But instead, he told them to tell the people, which is a very important teaching point. It should tell you a lot about discipling your children, but it should tell you a lot about being in a D group and leading a D group and making disciples, that this isn't just some, you know, random happenstance of information, but it's very important to see the disciple-making process. Jesus is training them for ministry when he's gone. Now we move into scene three, scene three. 
So they sit down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the, the disciples. And he set them before the people. And he, defi- and he divided the two fish among them all. Now, this is the question I want you to answer. Did the bread and the fish multiply in the hands of Jesus or in the hands of the disciples? Because you can't go anywhere until you figure this out. I wonder how many of you have heard this story a thousand times and never asked this question. Whose hands did The fish and the loaves multiply in. And why is that significant and important? Because it is hugely significant and important. Does the text tell us? I really don't want to tell you the answer. I just want you to figure it out. Because the text doesn't tell you. But you should know. And what you're thinking right now is wrong. It is. It's wrong. I guarantee you it's wrong. Look. Circle in the hands of the disciples. Put a circle around that. How do we know that? Well, I don't know. Let's think for a moment. Instead of just pretending like we don't have a mind and we just want, you know, well, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell. Put yourself in the moment. Live in this moment. I mean, I'm in the moment. I'm, 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 I'm there. I'm imagining this whole thing. So let's say the fish and the loaves multiply. Now, remember... We're talking $30,000 worth of Chick-fil-A. You got this? Thirty grand. That's a bunch of combos. Let's say Jesus holds it up, blesses it, poof, and it multiplies into $30,000 worth of food, which is what most people think it did. Here's my question. Uh, how did the disciples pass that out? Hmm? How did it get where it was going? That's not how this happened. They didn't, they had no mechanism to, to move all this food all over. That, that is not what happened. Second of all, the second reason why that didn't happen is because there's no outburst of excitement or change in the tenor of the situation after Jesus prays. Now, I'm just saying, people are people. Doesn't matter if it's Today, yesterday, or 3,000 years ago, you put 10,000 hungry people in a crowd, somebody goes hocus pocus, and $30,000 worth of Chick-fil-A pops open out of nowhere, and the excitement in the room doesn't change? Impossible. Man, people would lose their mind. That's not what happened. Furthermore, we know that they've come here for, for the wrong motivation to get something from God, not to be with God. Which is further confirmation that if it would have just been a pile of food, things would have went haywire. It would have been different. That's not what happened. 
because that's not how God works. See, we're going to come back to this, but I want you to understand something. Whenever we position ourselves in obedience to God to help other people, it doesn't matter the situation. It's always the same. When we're walking in obedience, helping, serving other people, we are not the source of the resources. We're the channel. You may take the money out of your bank account and give it to somebody else, and you're not the source of the resources. You're the channel. How did the money get in the bank account? Because I went to work. Well, how'd you go to work? Because I got up. Well, how'd you get up? And eventually you're going to get to the end of that line and realize you didn't do diddly squat nothing. God did it. So you're not the resources. You're the channel, right? So the disciples are the channel. They're not the source. They're the channel. But how does the channel work? How does God work through us when we're serving people, when we're working? Well, first of all, his economy operates in win-win scenarios. See, the world operates in win-lose scenarios. But that's not how God works. One of the ways you can sniff out whether God's in something or not in something or is real easy is if it's win-win, God might be in it. But if it's win-lose, God's not in it because that's not how God works. God's in win-win. That's how God works. That's how he works. So, so what do I mean by that? Well, so the disciples, think about this, they're not just conduits, they're recipients. Because you got to remember how this started. We got here because they were all exhausted and tired and it was been a hard day and we're going to go have some quiet time with Jesus and then these people show up and all these things happen. And so guess who is starving? The disciples are starving. The people are starving, but they're starving too. They're hungry. It's been a long day. They're tired. They want some food. And so they're the conduit of blessing, but guess what they get in as they're blessing other people? They eat also. See, what happens when you, you give up your, your vacation from work and you've been saving money and didn't take your family to Disney World, but instead you're going to take your family to Brazil and you go to Brazil and you've sacrificed all this time and money to go to, to Guatemala or to go to India or whatever the case may be. And so you, you've sacrificed all this to go and to do this and you're going to be a conduit and what happens? You end up a recipient. See, you come back thinking, man, I don't know what it did to them, but it changed me. See, you went to be a conduit, and you were a recipient. This is how the economy of God works. This is how God, you know, you, you got to know the character and nature of God so that you know when God's in things, because if you know Him, you can tell. That's His fingerprints. That's His ways. That's His tendencies. So no one goes away hungry. Everybody eats. The Bible says in verse 42, so they all ate and were filled. Everybody. Everybody's 
eats, everybody's filled. And then they take up 12 baskets full of fragments of the fish, which is important, but, but not nearly as significant as what this parable wants to teach us, but where people get hung up all the time. Now, those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men, just to let us know the size of the group of people. So in God's great provision in the way God works with, with his fingerprints all over it, they can teach us and help us to see and learn things about God. All right. Look, Jesus didn't need the boys' lunch. Now, I realize that that's painfully obvious, but it's also extraordinarily important. He doesn't... The whole thing about what do you have, go look at all of the... Look at all the effort that's expended in go and, and fan out through the crowd and ask everybody and come back and tell me what you got. Now, is Jesus just giving them busy work to do? I mean, that's a lot of work. So Jesus isn't asking them to do something for nothing, but yet he asked them to do that. And so he uses this boy's lunch, which he clearly doesn't need. Then the next thing he does is, well, he didn't need the disciples to distribute. He didn't need this 12-man team, this distribution system that he had. He didn't have to use that. It would have been so simple for Jesus to snap his fingers and make all the Chick-fil-A fall directly out of the sky over every single person so it calmed everybody on their own head. It would have been so simple for him to do that. He, it would have been just as easy for him to do that as to do this. All of these things that he's doing are for a very specific reason, to teach us and show us the reasoning behind the ways that he does. He's not doing things the easy way. He's not giving people what they want. He's making things right. He's not just making things right for the 5,000 people that are there that he's teaching. He's making things right for the 12 men that he's discipling. All of this has to do with all that's going on. Everybody eats. So he doesn't need the lunch and he doesn't need the disciples to distribute it. But he chooses to use them and why does he do that? Why? Why does he do something That he doesn't need to do. Which leads us to some takeaways. Then we'll go back to the middle. And we'll see what I think is the primary most important thing about this whole entire miracle. It teaches us about God. Very wonderfully and specifically and and practically. The first takeaway is this. The kingdom of God operates on participation not observation. Now, again, that is easy to say, but you've got to let that resonate in your heart and mind. You ever feel like you could be sitting in church and you can be listening to a sermon and you you can so easily feel like God is calling you to do something impossible? I mean, if you're paying attention, 
if you're, if you're half alive, then that ought to be a, a, a feeling that you, you have felt. God's just calling me to do something that is, it seems impossible. I mean, have you ever just looked around at the problems of the world and just thought, this is just this hopeless. I mean, come on. And I mean, what difference can I make? And what, you know, I mean, what? I mean, we've all had this feeling before. You look at the lost, hurting, suffering people around you. You know, and, and you, you care about different groups of people. And you have compassion towards certain, uh, you know, certain calamities or situations or circumstances based on your own experiences. And other people have other, you know, so you feel sympathetic towards these groups of people, and other people feel sympathetic towards this group of people. And so, you know, you, you might go to the same church, you sit right in the, you sit in the same pew with somebody, and when they drive through the, the four-way stop, and the person standing there with the sign that says, God bless, you know, homeless, need food, you roll your window down and hand them five bucks, and you, and you feel compassion for them, and the person that sits on the same pew Right next to you, drives past and looks at him and says, that fool needs a job. Now, who's right and who's wrong? Now, I don't, I'm neither, but here's what the point. The point is, is that neither one of you has the capacity or the solution to resolve homelessness or addiction or pornography or anything to do with any of the plights of, of the world in which we live in you look at any of it and you feel totally helpless because it's so overwhelming and so yeah you feel like I'm totally overwhelmed and so you go to God and you say Lord just help these people see like you you gave you gave that guy five bucks and so you're just like, God, you got this help. I see him every day when I go to work. And like every time you're getting off the interstate, you're like, man, I hope that guy's not there. And there he is. And you're like, man. And you go, God, help these people. Or you, you think about all these people that you work with in your office and they're all going to hell. And if the roof caves in and everybody dies in some tragedy at work tomorrow, they're going to hell forever. And it overwhelms you. And you, you grieve for them. And you're like, Lord, help them. Help them. Help them. Maybe it's your neighborhood or your family or whatever. The, the school you're in. Or what, all these things are just overwhelming. God, help all these people. And what does Jesus say when you say, God, help them? He says, you help them. Just like he told the disciples. That's what he says. You do it. He said, you are my ambassador. You. Why are you telling him to help them? Hmm? You notice... The disciples didn't go, 
Well, you know, all, Jesus didn't say, well, why didn't you just, you know, why didn't you just pray and say, God, help all these people? That's not what happened. They come to Jesus and say, look at all these hungry people as if he doesn't know. And then he doesn't go, oh, okay, well, let me just solve that problem. He goes, you do it. Uh-huh. Well, let that settle in the room for a second. But God, I'm just one person. Like, what can I do? What can I do? I'm just one person. Or, or we're just one little church. You know, what can one church do? Or what can one person do? Or what can one community group do? Or what can one small group do? Or what can... I don't know. It's a good thing we didn't say that before we start a Rescue 100, isn't it? It's a good thing we didn't say, well, just the hell with all those foster kids. Just let them just... It's, the, it's overwhelming. What are we going to do? We can't help them. Right? Or why don't we just say, well, here's the thing. You know, there's millions of people every day who die and go to hell, so we can't solve that, so why do we, why do we send mission teams all over the world? We, we're not going to, I mean, you know, we're just one little tiny dot in a giant country. So, hmm? Man, aren't we glad Jeff and Tish didn't just go, what can I do? Nothing. What if, what if everybody said, hey, I got a couch? That's how the whole thing started. Hey, I got a couch. You got a couch? You see what I'm saying? You see, we just passed the buck. We, we have a different kind of compassion than God has. We go, oh, you, God. I'm praying for him. God ain't hearing that prayer. He don't listen to that prayer. Because you're praying for something that you, you ought to do. Now, if you're doing what you can do, then God hears the prayer for everything else. Right? Yes, indeed. See, it's not observation. It's participation. I'm amazed at how many people want to have conversations about things that they're not participating in. You should never bring up anything that you're not participating in. You should whoop, zip it. Because you have zero credibility. This is a participation deal. Jesus said... Jesus knows they can't feed them. He knows they don't have 30 grand. But he said, you do it. You do it. And so he blessed the food and gave it to them. And guess what happened? It didn't just poof into $30,000 worth of Happy Meals. As they went around and started they had the little pieces of stuff that they had. As they started handing it out, what started happening? It started multiplying. And, and whose hands was it multiplying in? Their hands. Because they were participating. You got it? That's how this works. 
you got to understand what you have the, 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 the invitation to be a part of. See, every time God puts compassion in your heart for something, that's God giving you an invitation to do something that you, that's way beyond your capacity. Yes. And we become so proficient at just squishing it down. Well, what can I do? Well, it's a good thing that everybody doesn't do that because your life is being fed a thousand ways by people who didn't say what you said. They didn't say, well, what difference can I make? They just said, whatever I can do, I'm going to do it. And then God started multiplying through their hands. They're not the source of the resource. They're the channel. But you know what? When you don't participate, you are. You're not the channel. You're nothing. You're zero. You're not in the equation. And other people are experiencing the things that you've been invited into. Yes. See, when we've got to... We've got to beware because when serving, we've got to be, beware of calculating without Christ. That's another important principle here. See, Jesus, when he says, give them something to eat, you do it. Then, notice what he does. So important. He says, go and calculate what you have. So important. Everything I've ever done in my life. Whatever God gives me a burden for, I have to calculate what I have. I know that it's some impossible thing, but I have to calculate what I have. And that is a key ingredient to this whole process. Because you know what we do? We calculate without Christ. We say, God, here's what I have, and we lie. We lie. See, when God says, what do you have, what does he mean? He means, what's the grand total of what do you have? He already knows. But that's the test. That's the test right there. How many loaves do you have? Now, I just want to ask you a question. What would have happened if the disciples would have done what most American Christians do? Who, by the way, live lives of zero consequence. Man, hey, I'm not on you. I'm just giving you the facts. 99% of evangelicals in America will never lead anybody to Christ outside of their family. And don't think that the 99 are all leading somebody in their family to Christ because that's not the case. But 99 will never lead another person outside their family. Won't even share the gospel with them. Which is zero consequence. You've done nothing. Because you know why? Because here's what happens. 
Every time you start to do something, here's how you calculate. In, if, if in most Amer- 99% of American Christians were in this story, here's how this would have went down. They would have been hungry. They would have seen this whole thing. They would have went to God. They would have went to Jesus and said, hey, these people are hungry. We need to do something. What are we going to do? He said, you feed them. They're like, oh, we don't know, I don't know how we're going to do that. We don't have 30 grand. He said, calculate what you have. They would have went, found this couple of loaves and fishes, and then they would have eaten first. Then they would have brought the rest of it and said, here's what we have to work with to feed the 10,000. Negative. Wrong calculation. That's not how this works. That's exactly how most people calculate. And that's why nothing ever happens. Because that's the wrong calculation. Jesus didn't say, what do you have left over? He said, what do you have? And when they brought all that they had, he then what? See, here's the key. The key is the third one. The inadequacy ignites sufficiency. You see, the reason that this was such an extraordinary moment in their lives, maybe the reason why... Now think about this. Is this the most, to us, amazing supernatural of all the miracles? No. But guess what? This is the most impactful to the four guys that wrote the gospel. You know why? Because they participated in it. That's why. That's why it's recorded. That's why. Because it so impacted them. And here's the thing. Notice the moment. They're in this moment of utter inadequacy. And the fact that they bring all that they have and go, this is all I have. Now you look. You start reading the Bible through the lens of you watch Every time someone comes to God and brings all they have, and you watch every time someone comes to God and brings most of what they have or some of what they have, and watch the difference in what happens. Just watch. And it will explain to you why you see so much of what you see around you or maybe within you. I don't know. And so... You see, the sufficiency of the grace of God, the strength of God is made perfect in our weakness. So the, the, the greater the weakness, the greater the strength. It's the opposite of what we think. You see that? Now watch how all this is the main crux of this whole thing is back in that text box. See, notice, here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9. Just an example of a text we'll get to at some point time in the future. Paul's raising money for the impoverished, and they are impoverished, Christians in Jerusalem, and he's talking to the church at Corinth, and he says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, think about the magnitude of this promise. He Two verses later says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread 
for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, I just want to ask you a question. Is that what you experience? That is a promise straight out of the Bible to a group of believers just like me and you. Is that a description of your life? Yes or no? It should be. What's the problem? Read it. Look at what he says. All grace abound to you, having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Is that what you experience? You'll be enriched in every way to be generous. In every way. Good gracious. I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. I don't want to know how many times you've not been generous because you couldn't afford to be generous. Dear God, help you. I'd give if I could. Wow. Now there is a principle. Why does it seem like we're never able to do all the good that needs to be done? Because it seems to me when I read the New Testament that the Bible just assumes that we would be able to make the difference that God calls us to make. Matter of fact, I don't think any of you believe that God calls you to make a difference that, that He doesn't equip you to make. So the only way you can rationalize your, yourself out of changing the world around you is by saying, well, God must not have called me to do that. Hmm. See, here's the first principle. God's generous grace and provision, it gets interrupted if and when his followers use their resources to care for themselves first and offer only the surplus to him. You just cut the supply line. See, you thought that this, the supply chain issues was a new terminology. But there's lots of Christians walking around that the supply chain's been broken in their life spiritually for decades because of that principle right there. When the Lord tells us to go and see what we have to offer, whether it's our time, our talent, or our treasure, He expects us to declare everything that we have, not everything we have left over. Those are not the same things. They're not the same things. I'm just telling you, there's going to be a lot of shocking things when clarity comes in the future for those that are genuinely saved. There's going to be a lot of shocking things. But one of the most shocking things is you're going to realize that it was the people around you that had the least that God used to do the most simply because they got this principle. Because I, you know what my experience has been? The more you have, the less God uses you. So oftentimes. So oftentimes. 
Not always, praise God, but so oftentimes. That's why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to walk through the eye of a needle than to come into the kingdom of God. Now remember, the very next thing that happened is the rich man Zacchaeus came into the kingdom of God. So it's not impossible, but it is highly unlikely because of that principle right there. Because God says, bring me what you got. And you just gather up a bunch of stuff that you got left over and go, look at all this, God. I got all this. You can have this. You can use this. You can. And he's like, never mind. Well, we'll move on to somebody else. See, the beauty of this story is found in the fact that the disciples gave away what they themselves needed. Don't you see that? Jesus turned their sacrifice into surplus. That's what he did. That's what he did. They're hungry. And guess what they did? They brought all the food that they had to Jesus hungry. Yes. You understand? They didn't eat. They brought it all to him. They brought Jesus what they needed. And then he provided in abundance. Now you're starting to get the the picture of the 12 baskets left over. Now you're starting to understand all the, the financial principles that the Bible teaches about storing up your treasure in heaven and how all these things operate. Oh, yeah. How, it, how is it actually better to, to give than to receive? There it is right there. They're hungry, and they bring it all to Jesus. And then he turns their sacrifice into surplus. You know what? Whenever Jesus says, all those times in the New Testament, when he goes, well, they have their reward. You know what he's talking about? See, whenever he says, show me what you got, and you bring him all that you have after you've gotten what you need, and you bring it to Jesus, and he goes, well, you have your reward. And he says, no, you can have that. There you go. You want it? You can have it. You can have your reward. Go ahead. You think your 401k is so special? Have it. You think whatever you got so great? Have it. God said, have it. Go ahead, have it. Take it. Enjoy it. Do whatever you want with it. Go ahead. He ain't going to stop you. But this principle right here will never be activated. You know what he does a lot of times? When you bring him everything you have, he doesn't take it. He just wanted to see if you'd bring it. He just wants to see if you'd bring it. See, the big takeaway is that miracles of surplus follow moments of radical sacrifice. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. And the thing about it is, is that people who have experienced miracles of surplus in their life, they, they got it. They know it. They live it. Notice in Luke chapter 6, as you're just flying out of here, come on. Let's look at one last thing. Five more seconds. You won't die. Okay? You won't die. Five seconds. Can we do five seconds or is that going to be a problem? Five seconds. Luke chapter 6. 
Give. And it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Will be put into your lap. Key. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus said. Got it? There it is. You don't like the measure that it's being measured back to you? Well, okay. Fix it. What a blessing. Feeding 5,000 people. Who knew? Man, the same God that did that in the lives of those 12 wants to do that in your life and my life. That's what he wants to do. He's good. He's awesome. He made you and saved you to use you to do great things. You can't fix the world, but you can change the world around you. You can do something.